Hey, this is the Jazz Violin Podcast, episode 53, and today I'm chatting with Drew Jureka. Hey everybody, hope you're doing alright, um, I'm a little bit late with this episode, hopefully you guys don't mind, but here it is now, it's been a busy summer, um, it's been a very busy summer, so sometimes things just get in the way, and there you go, but we're here now, and um, yeah, I'm uh, here to tell you just briefly that if you want to support the podcast, you can do so via Patreon can give as little or as much as you want and it helps me keep this podcast going um monster months keeps with helps with the running costs and all of that stuff um i'm not going to go too far into it i am also still running my jazz violin practice club we are meeting up every week once a week for an hour to practice an interesting concept or an interesting exercise that i think will help you with your playing your jazz violin playing um so yeah if you want to if you want to check that out either of those things you can get me on www.patreon.com forward slash matt holborn and you can find out all about those uh, two things there either just supporting the podcast or joining my little practice club all right so to my guest my guest today is drew jureka he is an excellent violinist based in Canada. Um, I first got put on to Drew's playing from our mutual acquaintance and friend, Cha Limburger. Cha, you might know him from some of these podcasts, and you probably will just know him from his amazing playing anyway. But yeah, he put me on to Drew. He sent me a message saying, well, I think that if you want to speak to anybody about jazz, violin, technique, and uh, improvisation, this guy seems like um someone who could help so there we are i um got in contact and we had this excellent uh, conversation i think it's about two hours long it's a big old long one and uh you know we chat about everything and it's really interesting to hear his thoughts and his story uh as you know and how he got into playing uh, and improvising on the violin so without further ado i am going to pass you over to drew jureka I started this podcast, I can't remember, maybe three or four years ago now, just as a way of getting stories of um, of improvising violinists out there a little bit more, just for people who are starting to do it themselves and are thinking, oh, great, am I doing this the right way? Am I starting in the wrong way? Should I have started doing this first or should I have done this? Because, you know, obviously all these things, they always come from what what we think right and that's where it comes you know for me that i was just like that when i was first starting to play 
I remember just being really like, oh God, you know, shit, am I doing the right thing? And can I do it like this? And, you know. Did you, you have a classical background? Uh, sort of. Yeah, I had like teachers. I had classical teachers, right. yeah. I didn't have a classical conservatoire background, but I did have right. teachers who were classical violinists. And that's the thing, is, you know. I feel like th that question takes on different forms, right? Depending on who you're talking to, because yeah. like the classical thing has set. Well, maybe now it's changed, but it had such a center of gravity for such a long time, where it would like there was this like weird, almost religious doctrinaire thing with the classical world. That and you do, and you saying that in the past tense, like you don't think that's the thing now. I think it's, it's, it's definitely not as common. I don't know. I feel like that. Yeah, the 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 sort of like super conservatory Eurocentric worship of of the white male composers. And now, I mean, the funny thing is, of course, I to me that that's un, unrelated to the music in some important way. And so the conversation seems like it's gotten off track. But I will say that there was something kind of, I think, a little bit broken about the classical mentality in the way that any like orthodoxy usually has there's some something slightly wrong for that to continue the way that it does so yeah it seems like it's getting seems like it's becoming more more flexible it definitely has become more flexible I, yeah i just i don't know maybe like if you speak to a classical violinist just just come out of one of the big conserva conservatoires in the uk for sure they're gonna have just played classical music, and they're gonna feel certain things about other other types of music. But yeah, but they might much. have taken an improv class. That's true. Yeah, they probably will have. Actually. Whereas when I was in school, like I was at I was at the Cleveland Institute of Music, which is a, a fairly like well respected and kind of mainstream classical institution in a lot of ways. And like, I mean, it's not like I was really that much of a countercultural person, but even just the fact that I wanted to do improv classes and like go play gigs and bars it was like it was like i was from another planet yeah okay yeah. and i actually got asked to stop at some point one of the administrators walked by when i was rehearsing with a couple of other musicians just playing like jazz standards <laughs> in a practice room and they were like yeah we we actually don't want to hear that here like we don't want to <laughs> that's not a sound we want to hear on the <laughs> i mean that's that's crazy that's that, that was... seemed totally crazy to me then now yeah. but you know these days that i've been back and now. done some workshops there they've 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 at least like let go of that particular clench yeah yeah i agree just a bit you. yeah just a bit. so as in the administrator came around and said that yeah i trying to remember who it was it was just some like random person who kind of knocked on the door and was <laughs> like oh god you know i don't this is not what this is not what this place is for Wow. This is a like you got. You should have respect for this building and respect for this institution. Oh Jesus! Yeah, the idea that playing the you know, jazz jazz standards, which yeah. at that point are all, all like seventy years old and really, yeah. you know, have their yeah. own very important history, that somehow that's like disrespecting the yeah. the hallowed halls of the. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it's the kind of thing that that you would you would expect that a normal a a, a well adjusted person saying that would become embarrassed halfway through the sentence how did you uh how did you first start playing music well so i started when i was uh, a little tiny kid and mm -hmm. my my parents neither of whom played violin or any instrument actually uh just wanted to give their kids the opportunity to play instruments so my two older sisters uh played cello and violin and uh i i have a feeling that i was being brought to concerts 
that my sisters were going to. And so at some point I started to start asking for a violin when I was really young, at like two and a half or something. And, uh, and so at some point they gave in and started. So around three and a half, I started taking violin lessons, which of course I now have young kids and you realize just how useless a violin lesson is for a three and a half year old, but uh, at least you get gets like some of the the uh, the the format and framework in yeah. place. Uh, and then um, I I kind of just did the the like Suzuki thing, and went to art schools. in back then, I mean, this is unfortunately gone gone away a bit in in uh, in Toronto, but um, went to. Uh, schools that that kind of promoted public schools that promoted music and the arts and i went to two schools that both like they the the, the school i went to um for middle school i think kind of brilliantly like they wanted they wanted kids that were already you know had their fingers in it and were doing cool stuff and could play and you know they really auditioned and they only took like a certain number of people but then they really wouldn't let you play your main instrument or do your main thing. And so because I was a violinist, they were like, great. It's great that you play the violin. Uh, you need to learn a woodwind instrument. And so I went and was in stage band and uh, played clarinet and then I played saxophones. And so I got, I, I had this like classical kind of Suzuki upbringing. And then at the exact same time, I was, uh, I was taking saxophone and, and clarinet and um studying with local players and getting really into jazz music and so yeah for for a long time actually for basically until university i had somehow in my mind separated the the like classical music and everything else as being in completely different places where the classical music uh, was exclusively for the violin hmm. and then jazz and anything else outside of classical music was, a, was exclusively for, for like saxophones and clarinets and woodwind instruments. And hmm. so, yeah, kind of, kind of did that, did that whole thing, listen to a lot of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Art Blakey, the jazz messengers and all the horn players and, uh, and followed through. And then when I went to university, I started realizing that that division didn't make any sense and started to apply the those things back and forth a bit cool okay yeah because like it's the same with jean-luc ponty pretty much exactly the same if you've ever checked out his like, origin story that's what they call it now isn't it i don't know his origins i mean i was playing but uh, i didn't know that you mean he that he he can separated the classical and jazz things so he played completely in his mind he played clarinet and saxophone and he played jazz on them on those instruments he played those he played that he played jazz i think when he got to university uh, right. and but separated the two and then i think actually you know we, just what we were talking about there about people being people being told at university to stop playing jazz i think he was literally told by the university to stop playing or he'd have to leave but that's a bit... <laughs> well, that's worse that's worse than my story yeah i just i mean that was one in instant incident yeah. but of course i was playing the saxophone which yes. also you know i'm in a practice room playing the saxophone at a school that did not have a saxophone program at all yeah okay um <laughs> and and so it was interesting going to cim because 
I mean, I really wanted to go there and I wanted to study to be a great violinist. And uh, I don't think I ever wanted to play in an orchestra and I never really wanted to play violin concerti because I was never that interested in them. <laughs> I yeah. still don't really, I still can't listen to violin concertos really. I mean, I'm so glad I'm you impressed. said that. So I'm impressed, I. but I don't enjoy them. You don't enjoy them either? No. They're kind of, no. they're just kind of jockey. Yeah. They're like, yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, there's obviously there's, there's certain performances that you hear where there's going to, you know, blow your mind no matter what, but it's not, a, it's not a type of repertoire that I'm in love with. Um, no, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I was looking for, I was looking for something to do. And, and the only way I could do anything outside of like the, the super mainstream middle of the road thing was there was one guy, a guitar player named Don better who taught there really great jazz guitar player who was convinced that nobody knew that he was there. And the only reason he was still on staff is because somebody had forgotten about it. <laughs> and, and he was like, yeah, if, if I see the Dean, he never recognizes me. Like he was literally this guy. And he, he had like one uh, improv for classical musicians class that he taught. And then I started taking private improv lessons with him. Um, and then my violin teacher who uh, my private violin teacher who really was an understanding guy, uh, who a guy named David Uptograph, who was like a Galamian disciple, wonderful, wonderful teacher and a really great uh, understander of the technique of the instrument. But he very quickly was like, all right, uh, we're not going to do violin concertos. We're going to do solo Bach and Isai and work on, you know, things that, that bolster your chops. And then you bring in stuff that you're working on. And so he was totally on board as long as I met his expectations, like violinistically, he was he was willing to let me do other repertoire and, and be kind of. So he he kind of he kind of allowed me to make it through there without going totally insane. That's amazing. That's like yeah. a, that's a really that's cool because it's you don't hear that very often. I, you might be the first person, you know, <laughs> yeah. or one of the first people that I've heard say that. Often people. Well, yeah, will... my teacher, my, okay. my teacher in, in high school, who was a great violinist named Loran Fenyevich, who I I still I'm very grateful to him for a lot of things. But but uh, whenever he would ask me what I was doing, and I'd say, oh, you know, I'm playing a playing in a jazz combo, and I'm doing this stuff on the saxophone, I'm taking lessons. He would always say, "You are wasting your talent." <laughs> <laughs> he was like super super unimpressed and yeah. really negative about it. That's funny. Yeah, that's that's the usual story I hear. But um, yeah, it's, it's just it's just specifically the violin. I think. Um, I mean, I guess I only speak to violinists, but it feels very violinistic <laughs> to have that story of like the um, you know the classical violin teacher who's you know dogmatic about the one thing and and doesn't believe that you should be doing the other thing and anything that isn't that thing, but seems like you had you had a great great teacher there who yeah who could who could see that maybe your teacher could just see it's like well this is how i'm going to get the student to 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 carry on you know and, and to do to do it i've stayed in touch with him actually he's like i think he was just really uh, a soulful guy who was an educator and nice um he's retired but he's still around he's i think i think he was just like just trying to 
do the best that he could for his students. I really, I mean, I, I still feel that way. I think he was like, he wasn't, he, he didn't necessarily buy into the dogma of the school and the organization in the same way, I think. But he, I mean, uh, I also, after my first year there was auditioning for other schools and almost, almost left to go to Berkeley, do that mm-hmm. thing. And he talked me out of it. He said, you know, I think you'll probably like, you might, you might learn a lot of great improvisational skills. And like, of course there's, there's non-classical skills, musical skills that you can learn. But he said, you know, if you really want to be a great violinist, you're more likely to get there in a place like this, where you're going to be pushed to, you know, learn the technique and, and hone that. Um, And so that was when, I mean, I think that that was, I, I basically was threatening to leave and, and he, he, I really talked me out of it and it was totally cool about the whole thing. Yeah. And and what do you think about that now? Well, you mean the, well, (laughs) I now teach, uh, at the college level and I'm, I'm kind of dogmatic about violin technique. I mean, I'm, I try not to be a killjoy, but, but, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of I mean, I sort of think that, um, that the players that I love the most have some, something, some sparkle that you're more likely to get by getting a good education in the instrument. And it's not entirely fair because I mean, Grappelli wasn't like a classically trained violinist, but he had a beautiful sound and, and a beautiful concept of the instrument and obviously had, you know, amazing tone center. And like a lot of the players I love aren't like that. I mean, Stuff Smith had a completely different approach and, but, uh, but I, I don't know. I feel like the, that versatility, especially today, it kind of benefits us if we can to have both the imagination and just the technical basis for it. Yeah. No, I, yeah, I totally agree. Um, but I just wondered if you uh, more about whether, you know, did you think, do you think that going to Berkeley would have stopped you from having that technique? Oh, I try not to think that way. <laughs> like feels like feels like a dark hole um i i i don't know i mean it would have made my network differently for sure right and yeah uh and that would have been interesting and certainly like i kind of learned like so m- after i got out of university i i basically started playing i came back to toronto for a summer break and i and I got hired to play in a band that was touring a lot. And it kind of just gave, it was just enough of an anchor that it made sense for me to move back yeah. to town. And, um, and so I, I mean, aside from what little I learned from, from uh, Don, that guitarist that I was taking lessons with and a little bit of stuff from some of the saxophone players that I was studying with in high school, like all of my real jazz chops just came from figuring things out on the bandstand mm-hmm. and then to whatever degree i understand uh jazz harmony and theory i learned all of that when i had to teach it and mm. i would get questions from students that i 
was didn't have a good answer for and i'd be like okay let me think about that and tell you next week and then i would like read a bunch of things and come back and Hmm. try to answer the questions so yeah i i I mean there's certainly there's certainly missing knowledge that would have been interesting to have i think but i mean i think you've yeah i think you're hitting on something that i also agree with it's like a lot of a lot of what you do learn as a jazz musician is learned on the bandstand that it feels like a sort of cheesy thing that people say but it's true like you don't and i don't i didn't wouldn't believe it when i was studying because i studied on a jazz course and i wouldn't have believed it when i was studying i'm like no no this is like this is is you know i need to be here for this but actually you know by the end of that course probably didn't sound so great and actually doing gigs was like the thing that made it so recording right yeah sure actually yeah as well that's the one that's killed me honestly it's like i mean i love recording to Mm -hmm. the degree that most of what i do now is production and recording Mm -hmm. but but uh that was i mean i think that's been the big one for me lately is 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 being in it and listening back and either having to accept the the um the reality of what I did, which sometimes is cool, right? There's there's something to the immediacy and like the the non-perfection of that immediacy that makes jazz really wonderful. Hmm. Um, but also there are times when I listen back and I go, oh right, okay. So like what I what I wanted to be doing musically, I think has been kind of overtaken by my inability to achieve it. And that's like that's the balance that I feel like I'm always trying to that certainly for my students i kind of have this feeling that like i've got them for four years and i have that's my opportunity to really push them to become like excellent uh technicians and you know we work on improvising and swing and i mean rhythmic things and and developing ideas and harmonic concepts but but really i feel like the thing that they're unlikely to ever really concentrate get on again when they graduate is the technical stuff. Cause I didn't, I mean, you know, all of my good technical work happened when I was a student hmm. I'm yeah. too busy to sit down and, you know, shed in that way, in that sort of fundamental way. Yeah. And also like, you know, it's, it, if you don't need to go back and change fundamental technique, then it, you really don't want to be doing that because it isn't fun. <laughs> yeah. It's something and that well, I've I mean, had if, to do a lot of, to be honest. When well, it messes with your head, right? Like it's a, the suddenly the things that I, I don't know the the things I've been doing lately because I have I guess absolutely a broken work life balance is that my hobby is that I learn instruments, uh, which I mean again it's like I think if anyone any psych- psychologist would tell me that's a sign of like a really unbalanced mind, but the, um, but I've been, <laughs> I've been playing uh, the bandonian, which is, uh, you know, that nice. instrument that's common to tango music. Yeah. And, um, and man, like that, it's so interesting. That's the, the process of sort of getting over the initial hump of, of impossibility yeah. and nothing works and you can't even do it. And then getting to the point where you can sort of start to make things happen. And then like, it's once you get into that place where you're pretty good and then it's really just about tightening stuff up. And I had, so I'd almost forgotten the, the, the experience of practicing something and actually 
feeling it get worse as I started to overthink it more and more. And then like the next time I played, I totally would just fail to do the hard thing that I'd spent hours practicing on stage. Mm -hmm. And then like a month later, randomly it would be there. Yeah. I mean, that's, 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 that's so time consuming, right? Like when those being just going through that, uh, the home, yeah, the, that, I know what you mean. That, yeah, that thing is just—it's. I mean, it's crazy to. Uh, and I mean, if you're if you're playing all the time, it can potentially really mess with you on stage. Yeah, I think it can. I, I mean, I'm as my myself. I've spent a lot of time changing technique, and it is the, the it doesn't do good things to your brain. Sometimes it does great things to your brain because you still you have that those moments, you know like where you make a sound like you make a t- you, your tone sounds like better than it's ever sounded in a certain you know range on the instrument you think oh god amazing maybe you know maybe i can do it and <laughs> that might be something that if you've had good technique from quite early on you you know you maybe take some of these really simple things for granted you know things like, i don't know yeah. but it it can also be really bad because yeah i mean trying to change your technique is is tough it's like it's actually char said it when i interviewed him said you know learning anything it's like carving into marble you have to hit the marble loads of times and then once you've carved into it good analogy when you carve into it to to change anything you've got to like wipe the whole face off and that's even that's that's harder than just hitting the thing a bunch of times properly isn't it well and also you ruin a bunch of marble before you even start to have any chance of making something that looks like a face to begin with there's a whole <laughs> yeah. other level of you know, yeah there's all this there's all this waste that's uh, it's uh i mean i'm i'm definitely grateful i think uh i mean i used to have this i think what i now i i think basically works out to being kind of a crappy attitude which was that if you aren't playing well by a certain age, it's much less likely that you're ever going to really sound great. And I, I, uh, I've been disabused of that by a few students that I've had who came in and, you know, really improved while they were, while they were studying with me. And actually I just had this a few weeks ago, I was at the Toronto jazz festival and I heard a, a swing violin guy playing with the Django Reinhardt band. I was like, wow, that sounds amazing. And I went and figured out, found who it was. And it was one of my former students mm-hmm. who I, uh, I knew he had improved a lot when he was studying with me. I knew he was a great musician with great ears, but I mean, he's, he just, he sounded incredible. He sounded way right. better than I thought that he <laughs> likely would sound given whatever the four years that had passed since I had seen him last. Yeah. But I do think that there's like, so, I mean, I guess I, I no longer have that sort of, you know, elitist attitude of like, you need to get it together when you're a kid or it's never going to happen. But I, I, I definitely think it's convenient yeah. to have, I mean, I, I'm lucky that I don't remember a lot of that really painful work. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's Especially funny. on an instrument like the violin where, I mean, you can spend a long time making really awful sounds on a violin before you make anything that sounds, yeah. you know, like you'd want to listen to it at all. Yeah. It's, you know, I have three three daughters, and they're all playing the violin. Oh, and right. I listen to this, yeah. listen to this process happen, and it's like it's for years. They, I mean, you can hear their talent or and their ears working, and you can hear them trying, and you can hear yeah. the improvement. But it's it's amazing how how far the distance is from just picking the thing up 
and making a sound. Yeah. Whereas, you know, a piano or a clarinet or a guitar, there's a much higher degree of likelihood that you're going to make something that sounds good to you mm. within the first few months. Yeah, the violin's a funny one. It's, uh, it's, yeah, not, it's, it's very like it's trying unforgiving. To make it yes. Yeah. <laughs> the vi I was talking to the guy who made my violin, actually, and he was talking about how violins... I mean, probably all instruments are like this, but it just did hit home with me about how the violin his what he had to say about how you like the making of a violin reminded me of what i think of how we learn and how we play the violin is that the violin only just works like if anything is slightly off with making of a violin it'll sound duff it'll sound bad you know if you make if yeah. you don't you know, if well, I don't know, actually, I shouldn't say, you know, because I don't know. But there's <laughs> loads of stuff, seemingly, when you're making a violin, that if you take the wrong, a wrong turn in just the slightest, slightest way, it doesn't work anymore. And I think that's the same with the violin, right? Like when we play. Yeah, that's, it's interesting that you say that. I also know the guy that made my violin, and I, I'm kind of like talking to violin makers for probably <laughs> for the same reason that you do, which is tend to be yeah. passionate, interesting people. But yeah. uh, but he said a very similar thing, which was that he said, you know, all the major innovations that have been made in the in the technology of the violin are a matter of like millimeters. <laughs> and so he's like all the changes, you know, if you look, look at those original <laughs> instruments and then, yeah. you know, whatever, the, 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 the little variation between the different makers. I mean, they're, they're so slight and they, yeah. they make a big difference you know a little bit higher uh, on the on the arch or a little bit wider around some area yeah it's it is it's crazy yeah well i just the vibe it's it's just that it's the same with playing it is the same with playing oh man i mean the diff the distance be between two different types of sound on the sounding point are so slight yeah and i mean the distance between a very out of tune note and a perfectly in tune note are also very slight i imagine a matter of millimeters at best yes, probably, and when yeah. you get up in a high position it's probably way less yeah yeah so the the level of of sensitivity that we have to develop somehow over some period of time is kind of insane to yeah. think about hey so you um you you studied classical music and you were playing jazz on the clarinet at this point but when did yeah, you I was decide playing, to... like sax so i moved back so i was uh, I had sort of stopped playing the saxophone other than jazz groups. And then I, um, nearing the end of my time at Cleveland Institute of Music, um, I sort of started, I think it might have been Dawn, somebody at some point. Well, I mean, you know, somebody was saying, well, you should just stop bringing the saxophone to gigs because you're better at the violin. Mm -hmm. You should be playing the violin on gigs. Just... Yeah. So I sort of started doing that. And, um, and then uh, I was, we were playing, uh, I just got hired. Well, I guess it was a school thing. Um, a backup orchestra for Dave Brubeck's band. Right. And, um, and yeah, it was a nice concert. And the school orchestra had been hired to, to do their, I don't know if they were hired, engaged to do it. Um, and uh, my, my girlfriend, who's now my wife, um, uh, went up to Dave Brubeck on the break and was like, Hey, 
my boyfriend's a really awesome jazz improviser (laughs) and because I was too afraid to approach him. And, uh, and so he actually came over to me and said, Hey, your girlfriend thinks you're a really good jazz improviser. Uh, let's like, let's see if I agree with her. And so (laughs) we went and played like, I think we played take the A train and we played, uh, a couple of, a couple of jazz standards. Yeah. Um, just him and I, which was really cool. And then he asked me to come up in the concert and play a, uh, play their encore with them, which I mean, nice. was incredibly generous and was a really cool experience. And so, but it was, I think that was the first time I'd ever played with a really amazing rhythm section and like had that, I hadn't somehow had that experience. The, the rush that you get from like a really great performance of an improvised solo in front of an audience with like amazing support people that are listening and backing you up really well. And that, that sort of cemented it, like it dropped the last piece in place. And I just, you know, I had played classical concerts and, and felt really great about it, but I, uh, that was the first time. Um, I mean, I've basically been trying to equal that experience ever since, <laughs> frankly, but like <laughs> sort of a high bar, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, that was like, after that, I was like, okay, this is what I need to be doing immediately. Like, this, I love this. And so, um, um, yeah. And then I, I moved back to Toronto because a, a guitarist by the name of Jeff Healy, who's better known as a rock musician. He had, he had a couple of hits as a, as a, uh, as a rock guitarist with a band called the Jeff appropriately enough, the Jeff Healy band. But he was, um, he was one of those guys who like really loved uh, classic jazz. He was a huge Eddie Lang fan. All right. And, um, uh, and a, and a big fan of just, you know, 20s, 30s and 40s um, jazz music. And so he kind of established himself and had a, a, a real career and became a known name, certainly in Canada and, and to, to a lesser degree uh, worldwide. And then he, uh, I think he reached a certain age and he was like, I don't really feel like playing rock and blues, but uh, but I really want to play jazz gigs. And so he just started, he started um booking a like a 10 piece new orleans style wow. chaotic jazz band and so he i just randomly i was playing i would go you know like you do when you're young and you're you don't know what else to do i was going out and just sitting in anywhere i could for a while there so he heard me sitting in with a a, a gypsy swing band and he said hey yeah uh, come to my he had a club that was named after him in Toronto. So he said, come to my club. We play Saturdays. And um, so I went and played with him at the club. And then he said, hey, we're making a record next week. When are you coming and uh, do this record? Hey, by the way, learn uh, Wildcat by Joe Venuti and Eddie mm-hmm. Lang. And so I learned Wildcat by, by Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang and then made the record. And then he was like, great. Whenever you graduate from school, you know, I, I play around 150 dates a year with the jazz band. You can come and join the band nice so that was like yeah it gave it just gave me this perfect like i didn't know what i was gonna do so i was like all right well i've got a gig (laughs) so i I, yeah amazing but um he's worth checking out if you haven't heard him actually great great guitar player i mean truly virtuosic guitar player but uh but a um a a very good trumpet player and an amazing singer like really fantastic vocalist um Sort of sounded like a cross between Bring Bring Crosby and Wingy Minone or something like a lot 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 hipper than Bing Crosby, but but uh, 
similar vocal timbre. And so I played with him for about five years and, and, uh, and he passed away very young. Um, and, uh, and I was kind of left with a fairly established set of contacts in Toronto and, you know, decent, decent enough, um, situation where I could work and, and play a lot. And Toronto's a wonderful city to play music in. So I've stayed. I've loved mm. it. Yeah. I think it, Jeff Healy, the name sounds familiar to me. Um, so maybe I do. Yeah, know. he he had a he he had a a heyday where he was, I would say, very well known. Okay, then um, then I, sort then of I'm, like yeah. guitar rock god. Uh, yeah, he's a if it rings a bell. He he was blind, and so he actually played with the guitar sitting on his lap. Huh. He kind of played it. He kind of played it like a keyboard. Right. So he fingered like the left hand with his, oh, with his right. fingers kind of coming down on the on the fretboard and then he strummed um okay. with his with his right hand he was just I, one of those guys he was self-taught i definitely it's, i've seen someone do that but not jeff healy i'm trying to think someone not jeff. i'm sure i've seen someone like a jazz jazz guitarist do that i can't remember what it's called yeah i've never seen anyone else do that it was it was an odd look yeah and i had i I wasn't a big rock and like rock fan. And so I have, I really like, it was kind of like you, like his name seemed vaguely familiar yeah. when I met him, but you know, like guys that are, are used to being well-known, he introduced himself. Like, I'm, like, I'm Jeff Healy. I'm like, Oh, okay. Right. You know, I, but I didn't, I didn't have a, any context for who he was. Yeah. And, uh, and, um, and I was completely surprised uh, by the way he played the guitar. And actually also Jeff was, was, um, remarkable because I, the first, I think it was the third time that I met him that I realized that he was blind, wow. which is interesting. Like he was just, he could kind of echolocate. And I mean, I always met him in places that he knew, like, pub, you know, jazz clubs that he frequented, but he would, he would walk right out. And like, you know, when I met him, he he'd walked over to me and stuck out his hand and shook my right, hand. Yeah. So there was no, like, there was no, uh, there's no sense. There's no cane. Mm. There's yeah. no sense of, uh, of, uh, of that. And then the next time I met him, he was in his club, which, you know, he knew, he knew his way around. The third time I met him was in a recording studio. And, uh, and then it sort of started to dawn on me because like, he, but I just never saw him arrive. He always used a cane outside, but when he was in, but he was a kind of, a, kind of, I mean, one of those people who just kind of, I think picked up on things really fast and hmm. yeah, he was good. He, and I learned a lot from him. He, he, uh, he was a major collector of 78 RPM records. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, if you listen to like reissues of Joe Venuti and Eddie Lang on okay records and, and some of those, that old swing stuff um, and like Frankie Trombauer, he was a bit, that was his sort of his wheelhouse. Um, he he often had the best copy of those that was in existence. A lot of those are from his collection. He had this basement with like 600,000 78 RPM records, shellac records, just stacked on shelves. And uh, and so he would invite me and Jesse, the guitar player, the other guitar player in the band, and uh, 
whoever else had time. I mean, we were the two young guys, so we didn't have like a day job or anything else to do. So we would go and hang out with him and, uh, and he would just spin records for us for hours and say, Oh, you should hear this. This is, you know, Harry Bluestone and Bobby Sherwood. They're kind of doing a Vanity Lang thing, or he would kind of, you know, show me different things. And uh, yeah, he could just, he could literally walk through and pick a record off the shelf. Hmm. Pretty much without, uh, making a mistake you could feel the matrix numbers on the sides of the records right yeah that's really cool so that's loads of records really... as well that's i don't yeah. I'm, i i just want, i wonder how people have time to to like listen to that that much music especially when you can't you you can't take it around with you you know it's... well he had just sat in his i mean he just listened to it in his his basement i, I there's something about a 78 in particular which is that each side is what a maximum of something like three and a half minutes yeah okay yeah and so you can you can kind of only listen to them as a focus yeah you know you don't you don't really put it on and then sit down and do something have a party Hmm. because yeah because you got to go change the record like three minutes later so Uh. It's of the the experience with him of listening to records was that we would literally just sit around in armchairs and he would kind of take out a record. He would tell us what he knew about the musicians. I mean, really had a photographic memory and was remarkably knowledgeable. And then and then he'd put on the record, and then he would maybe he'd play us the other side. But mm. usually there was like three minutes of music, and then he'd go and find the next record. So yeah, it's it was a very different way of listening to music than like. That's interesting. You know, Alexa, play me songs similar to Django Reinhardt and the Quintet of the Hot Club of Paris or whatever. You know, it's like the, these days, I think it's a, that, that's a, that's a completely different, it's almost like, it's almost like the, the function of music is, is changed by its form mm-hmm. in that sense. Yeah, I had never, you know, I'm not a record collector and I've not really been someone who's been around it much. So I didn't even, you know, when you talk about 78s, I know that I knew that some records are, you know, are really short and some, some, you know, some LPs, I guess, are longer. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about it. I don't know the, the technicality. So I didn't know that that was what a 78 was and that you could it was three minutes and that does that does like focus the mind doesn't it because it's just like this is what it is like just stay here or you're gonna miss it or yeah yeah i mean that's i don't know if you can see it back there but that's my uh that's my victrola behind me right so i inherited a bunch of records eddie lang and venuti venuti lang stuff and and uh some stuff smith records and and um some quintet the hot club records mostly he would always give me violin stuff um usually if he would have extras mm-hmm. of something he would be like hey do you want this uh it's like a bunch of Grappelli yeah. records and um uh and i still listen to them um once in a while i mean again it's like it is a different experience because you have to sit down but but it's it's kind of it definitely there's a a magic to that kind of focus that uh, that I find really enjoyable, and I've noticed. So I mean, I I do this for my students. For years at at Humber College in Toronto, I was running a uh, a Django Reinhardt ensemble that was playing swing jazz, and um, I mean, we didn't play much Django. I was usually trying to push them to kind of fit new things into the swing jazz repertoire. But I would I would always bring 
a bunch of Django records and the Victrola in and right. and sit down and and like mm. play them some records cuz it's sort of something about hearing it in its original format and and experiencing that it's really cool and uh most of them had never I mean had no awareness of that technology cuz it's not like old recording technology is necessarily of interest to most people but the other thing that i noticed was that i it it seems like for for the the students that i was playing this for it was very difficult to not talk through a three and a half minute long piece of music and just listen to it. Hmm. And I would make them sit like, I, 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 I probably will again, but COVID had shut down ensembles for a couple of years, but, uh, but I would make them sit and listen, to, <laughs> listen to it. Like, no, no, we're not going to talk about it until after it's done three minutes long. You can do it. Just sit and listen to the music. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely uh it's definitely a unique thing hmm yeah yeah i guess like you said like the function of music is sort of feels like it's changed but you would think it hadn't changed for music students you would think that that would always be the same do you listen to a lot of music i do but i listen to it on the on the tube when I'm when I'm or if I'm well I don't drive much because I live in London but if I'm yeah I listen to it on the go but I don't right. sit and I don't just sit and listen to it very often I guess and if I do sit and listen to it I've got it I'm I'm usually working I'm like practicing something from it I'll be right. taking a line and just repeating it you know so that's yeah. not really listening to music that's just you know I mean musicians are weird right like I because I, my relationship to recorded music is a bit strange also, because I'm either listening to it like you, because I've got to learn something or because there's something that I heard that I want to try and figure out or whatever yeah. it is. Uh, or, I mean, I still, maybe once or twice a month, I'll, when I'm taking a break in the studio, I'll go and put on a couple of records and really just sit and listen to them. Mm -hmm. um, but that's, I actually kind of can't stand to listen to music other than that. I no. feel like I'm either focusing directly on it, but I, I'm not sure I could listen to an entire LP worth and focus directly on it. I'm, mm. It's like human beings have lost that ability. And, I know and, what uh, or I'm listening to it and I'm learning from it. Like you say, it's not really listening, but yeah, I, uh, when it's in the background, it, it starts to irritate me, even if I like it yeah. really quickly. That's funny. See, yeah, I know what you mean. I think I find it hard to listen to jazz often in that way. I f like I can't, I can't really listen to the music that I, I guess I play and love in that way. Mm. I because yeah, I just use either you you just have to sort of listen to it, or yeah, I know what you mean. You get a bit annoyed. I listen to pop music, you know, or you know Bob Dylan or whatever. If I'm gonna Perfect. just be hanging, but. Yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, it can. I know what you mean. I've recently started enjoying listening to music a bit more, just whilst whilst traveling around, just chat, you know. And I can listen. I can use that as time. But then I'm probably thinking to myself at that moment, "Yeah, you're really soaking this up and like getting it into your playing or something." <laughs> That's right. Sucks. Giving yourself a pat on the back. Isn't yeah, it? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. So it's not. It's very funny, that isn't it? Yeah. Hey, so uh, you know, um, you 
it seems like you just from what you've been saying that you not you you're not playing as much anymore uh, you're doing a lot of you're doing a lot of production and i can see around you i mean you've got a, a yeah. tape a tape machine there and you know you, you you've got a real setup those look like some nice mics yeah. um ah, so you're doing a lot nice of production I'm doing a lot um, of production i do actually play i mean toronto's got a really vital music scene yeah and uh and now that uh the pandemic i don't know if this happened in london but but uh i would say the music scene had gotten kind of lame and <laughs> actually weirdly the pandemic maybe revitalized it for mm. us yeah maybe. because people were so desperate to go and do stuff yeah that uh a, a couple of the sort of hipper live music joints that are playing like some pieces they're playing you know like jazz like you know not not i'm not talking about about places that are playing really modern things are really just full and quite successful there seems yeah. to be a, a huge in interest and resurgence but um yeah i can play play with singers and i can play i usually i have a trio that if you've heard my record you've heard approximately the trio that i yeah. still play a lot with and uh i can play i don't know 20 or so of my own shows a year usually i get booked nice for those kinds of things nothing really uh no i mean not nothing international it's all local stuff but nice yeah no, nice venues playing, with no, listening audiences yeah. oh yeah i mean this is this, on, this is the thing this is the goal actually it's like that's that's the that's the fun part is playing for people and enjoying it yeah um and but uh no i mean i've been playing bandonian partially because my wife started a tango band oh nice and uh i started out producing their records and and arranging and being that guy and then uh their accordion player i mean for years they were playing with this great accordion player and all the argentinians that would listen to them would say you guys are great but accordion has no place in tango you need a bandonianist <laughs> so i bought a bandonian on ebay and right around the same time through completely unrelated circumstances that accordion player moved back to serbia and is teaching at a university mm. there and so they had an opening and they needed to fill it and i was like all right i'll figure this out so mm. i've actually been playing a whole lot with that band which is kind of cool. incredible a band called Piadora. and and more recently we've been writing for the ensemble because we're in canada so it's not like we're an authentic argentinian tango band anyways mm -hmm. and so we're 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 making it our own uh nice. and that's kind of like jazz in a lot of ways mm. it's improv it's improvisatory but i'm not nice. playing violin for the most part and um yeah i play with a with a, a couple of other ensembles and and i i've been playing with actually speaking of classical music i i i had a string quartet that i was booking very regularly to play the arrangements that i was writing for songwriters and film soundtracks and different scoring things that i was doing and uh i had kind of zeroed in on a core of players that i liked and we just started playing shows um and so i wrote a four movement string quartet that's kind of jazz inspired oh, nice. in some ways i'll send you the recording of it if you're interested yeah you've not got and you've um, not got that out on the internet it's it's just you know we recorded it like right as the pandemic hit right yeah and then it's mastered like it's mixed and mastered yeah we've got artwork yeah and i just i have to like 
get over the hump of of uh releasing it and it's yeah. just one of it it just fell in those crack where i'm really proud of it actually i really like the record i like the piece yeah uh and um and i just i releasing it feels like a chore which is not how you want it to feel yeah so it's it's sort of somehow just you know it didn't age like wine well the i think the music aged well but the the experience somehow i've moved on to other things um and uh and i've been making music with my family which is kind of fun doing little things so i'm still doing a lot of stuff for myself but um well yeah it sounds like you're being when you're saying you're not playing which sounds like you i don't think i agree with. i guess yeah that's that's I guess what I mean is that I'm not prior. You're not prioritizing. I'm not prioritizing it in the same way that I, I did when I was in my twenties, mm-hmm. especially like in my twenties, I would go out and play every night mm-hmm. in bars if I could. Yeah. And I kind of don't do that now. But the, okay. But the, um, but, uh, it's, uh, it's still the biggest thrill I can get, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's not something I want to eliminate particularly. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. It's yeah. It always is, really. I have, you know, I think anyone who, I mean, who gets, I don't know. Yeah. Anyone who gets into it this far, you're sort of done. Yeah. You're not like, you're not getting out. You're, you'll, you'll be no. playing till you can't, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, musicians and, and like, everyone I know that works a real job or teaches a lot, they might care about it and they might love it. But I think if, if they're a musician, I mean, I'm talking about musicians that I know that, you know, have a full-time teaching gig or like whatever, mm-hmm. took on some other work. Uh, there's always this feeling of working so that you can like, the music is still the, yeah. the end result, even if it's not your primary uh, bread, breadwinning opportunity. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it yeah. feels like so you can play, it. yeah, <laughs> which is great. I mean, that's that's killer. And and I mean, I I like the I like studio work a lot. Actually, there's there's a different kind of aha moment I think that comes from uh, orchestrating a band and figuring out how all the parts are going to work. And I mean, there's an improvisatory element to arranging and orchestrating and production also, yeah. which is that you. I mean, at least the way I do it is by doing the improviser thing and generating a million ideas, except that I get to go back, I get to sort back through them and, and actually choose my favorites, which you don't mm. get to do on stage. Yeah. Just kind of, kind of cool. So it's, it's definitely, it's a slower build, but there's definitely a, a I think it scratches a similar itch, mm. but, uh, but yeah, what during the, during COVID when I was really exclusively in the studio for that first while that, you know, nobody was doing anything. Uh, I definitely hit a point where I was really tired of it and I was mm-hmm. ready to not be a exclusively a studio musician anymore. Mm-hmm. How and did you so get into doing the, like, how did you get into doing studio um, music stuff? Well, so I was getting gigs as you do to record and I just never liked the way it sounded. And so I started when I would play a session and I would like the recorded sound, I would ask questions of the engineer and, and find out what they were doing. And, uh, and so, you know, that first led me to buy a good microphone and, and really invest in, in that and do some 
you know, real thinking about mics. And then once you get a good microphone, then you need some way to record it. So you buy an interface and, uh, and same thing. I mean, I've, I've kind of always like, if there was something that I've heard recorded that I couldn't figure out how to do, then I start trying to figure out how to do it. And unfortunately with the recording business, what that, that usually means saving and then spending a bunch of money on some piece of gear. I mean, the, there are, there's a, there's a unfortunate reality there, which is that good stuff still costs real money. I guess it's just like violins. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but so I've, over the years, I've just kind of slowly collected a, a specialized set of things, mostly to record the instruments that I play well. Um, and, uh, and so initially I started bringing things into to studios and then more and more, as because I cared about it and because I was investing in it and because I was learning to use the stuff and and building more and more elaborate spaces to record in properly, um, people just started to send me things to do at home. So mm -hmm. now I've got this place. You can't see it that well from this this angle, but I've got a a room that uh, that's where a, a normal person's garage would be. And I basically tore down and rebuilt it as a, as a, a, a small studio, but it's big enough to record a string quartet nice. um, really nicely. And so I use it for overdubs. And I get a lot of my work is arranging for songwriter, pop, jazz things, mostly local, but there's been some inter international work. And then um, uh, uh, allowing me to, to, to do the kind of, you know, the kind of creative work I, I want to do in the studio. Hmm. And I, you know, got into it thinking, Oh, I have this great. I'm going to make a bunch of my own records, but of course, actually I mostly make, <laughs> make music for other people, which is also wonderful and fun. So do you produce for yourself? I do. I mean, I produced my own, that record that you heard of mine. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't record it actually. I went sure. to a studio, but I didn't want to be in charge. Mm -hmm. And I produced, there's another record that I did record here. For a band called the Hogtown Syncopators, which I'm really proud of that record, actually. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, uh, I've recently during again, once everything comes back to COVID for the last little while, but uh, we started making these family videos with the kids where the the sound production values were quite high, hmm. um, and so I mean, the video production values are you know, iPhone level, because that's what we've got, but, um, uh, or that's what we had, but, um, uh, so I, we, I mean, really wanted to make good sounding kids, kids music records. I can mm. send you links later if you're curious to see them. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that's, I've been producing those things. And then because my wife and I are working together on, um, on the tango project, uh, it's usually made sense for me to be the producer for those, those things. That's where I've been the most active mm. on my own projects lately is producing records for that band. We've been collaborating with dancers and making a film and produced, I uh, produced the music for that. And right now we're working on another sort of multimedia project that requires a bunch of recording. Mm. So yeah, that's, I, I do get to maybe a couple times a year, I get to, to work on something that is mine or, partially or mostly mine hmm. but hmm. mostly my work in the studio is small things um soundtracks 
yeah. not as a composer as a player yeah done some yeah. big video game soundtracks and some tel- long-running television show things as, as a player mm-hmm. um and then like pop records that where they okay. need a s- strings <laughs> yeah you know you know the thing not yeah, jazz yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so you think, you reckon you're, I mean, I'm asking this as a leading question. I. It seems like your background as an improviser has bled into your work as a producer. And it's probably enabled a lot of the skills. That... Oh, yeah, it's crucial, right? I mean, I think that my, I just, I just had a conversation with a woman who just retired from Humber College, which is the, the, the school that I teach at. Um, and, uh, she ran the, like the, the, uh, sort of pre-conservatory program, high school and middle school, um, weekend program for years, really smart woman. And she was, she was saying that she feels like improvisatory skills and jazz skills should be taught in, in Mm. all other, uh, milieus, not just musical, but she feels Mm. like the, she was sort of making the case that the uh, that the skills that we learn in terms of listening and communication and the way that you have to, I mean, you can be a soloist and and be the focus, but you also to play jazz well, you have to you have to be inclusive and listening to the other people yeah. that you're working with and responding to them. Like you got to take the lead that the guitarist gives you, or whatever, or or you're just or you're just going to sound wrong or you're just going to be the jerk that's, you know, not, not playing the game. So I mean, and I think that's for me, that feels really true. Like I feel like the, I love playing shows as a jazz musician. I, mm. I, I in, uh, excitedly take those opportunities, but I feel like, yes, yeah, that same set of skills I think makes me a good orchestrator and it makes me a good um, makes me a good arranger and it makes me a good producer because I think you you listen from within the music and you, you're trying to uh, understand something big picture about direction and vibe and uh, and growth and emotional content uh, and in the moment like you you have to kind of inhabit that in the moment and and be a participant in it from within. And I feel like there's, if you can get into that headspace on stage, you, you can play some amazing things that you might not think of, you know, sitting around on your own. And then, and then if you're, if you can get into that headspace in, in, in a creative songwriting or production or arranging session, I think you can do the same thing. You kind of understand the song in a way that, that allows you to look for the, the places that it, that it needs something and understand what those things are and bring that to the table. So I feel like it's, it's still, to me, it's like, it's the only way to approach a lot of things. So for me, composition is just slower improvisation that you have to write down and, and, you know, the production is sort of the same way. It's all, it's all, it all really feels like the same. same Yeah. I think it was funny is like, I think everyone's got different processes or, yeah processes for like writing music right and i think the same is for they usually have the same process for improvising like musicians i know who 
are very I don't know you've got different different types of improvisers I've found people who are very pattern based people who think in big chunks they might write like their own lines that are quite large and just like have loads of them especially you see that in in the, the Django world quite quite a lot oh, yeah. you know people who it's, it's, it's sort of working in blocks but like really dense blocks and yeah it's and it's repertoire actually right like it comes back yeah you start to get to know the material yeah and i just see people who and then and often they will write in the same way they'll write um in that in a more measured way but in in big in big blocks of like of dense material hmm. rather for myself i write in a very improvisational, in a improvisatory way. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I, should, I, I think it does. Say that. Um, I, I write in that way very much so, as in I'll write with my voice and a chordal instrument, either piano or guitar, you know, and that's how I do it. And I tend to play in that same way. I don't play with patterns, you know. I don't know. It's a, I don't know if actually, if, if I've got a good point, I think I do, but it's, it's the, I think people write in the same way that they improvise and probably improvise in the same way that they write. So it sounds like, yeah, well, I mean, it, it's, I think it's improvising is one of the ways that you, uh, explore and hone your own creative abilities, which includes whatever your tendencies are. And then, I don't know. I don't know if this question has been asked, but the, the nature versus nurture question with improvisers is always interesting to me because I feel like I hear some students that come in and they need the structure of the patterns and the scales and whatever. And some people never get past it and never become great improvisers and just become sort of pattern machines. Yeah. And some people elevate that to the point where it becomes an, you know, an art form that they're, that, that, that's sort of their, yeah. their entry into the, the creative world yeah. that lies beyond it. Yeah. Whereas I tend to think in phrases yeah. and maybe I think about form a little bit, or maybe I have yeah. one particular piece of in inspiration and then I kind of take it piece by piece and I go, okay, well, where do I need to go from here? How do I go from here? What is the, what's the next thing? I, I tend to not like patterns because I think that um, at least maybe I just don't have enough interesting pattern repertoire, but I think for the most part, when I start working that way, I then get, I then bore myself. I'm not sophisticated yeah. enough with it to make great music with it. I think I'm similar, actually. But, uh, but similar. it seems like, I mean, it just seems like there's, it seems like, yeah, it's like your personality, right? There's you, you, whatever your, your experiences are and whatever your mental tendencies are yeah. and whatever your uh, education and everything else are, yeah. they, they, they kind of all boil together to become this, Ideally, if, if it works for you, some unified thing that you can carry forward and, and starts to feel like your approach and the music that you make starts to feel like you in some way. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I agree. I actually, I think I'm going to have to get going. It's been really nice to yeah, chat man. to you. Um, it's been a pleasure. Just before we go, your top five jazz violinists, go. Top five. Oh my God. I don't know if I have five. You don't have uh, five. Uh, 
<laughs> you know, I All right, I don't listen top. to jazz violin. I, I can tell top you this: three. I, I love Grappelli and uh, Venuti. Venuti's probably number one. Venuti at the top. Let's give Sven Asmussen second place, uh, and then I, I gotta put put Grappelli in there. Um, I'm simultaneously always charmed and a little bored by Grappelli in the same way that I'm always charmed yeah. and a little bored by Ella Fitzgerald. I think okay, it's that's so beautiful, a funny one. but it's, it, yeah, and it's okay. not that I don't like it, but I, it's somehow I'm just like, I don't know. That's, I feel, I feel almost sacrilegious saying that, but it's, it's true. Um, no, and, I know what you uh, mean. and I, I love exactly stuff Smith and Ray Nance. There's five. You did five. All bunch you of did five guys. so quickly. That was that. Was, yeah, you're you right. No, problem. that might be it though. It's not that I don't like some modern players that I've heard. I'm, t- I'm but, talking uh, about. We don't need to talk about modern but, players. Just... Yeah, but it, but in fact, I've listened to a lot. Of, most of the jazz that I've listened to in my lifetime has been non non violinists. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's actually. I I do think that you don't get good at playing jazz if you just listen to jazz violinists. You sort of. It, I don't think it works. You you have to listen to it. you just won't get good at jazz you, or you're yeah, done. I think you you're listen to right. yeah. Or you yeah. become an imitator, which is not the goal. Yeah, but then yeah, I think it's just about there's there's just not enough of them. And in in the sort of golden age of jazz, and they're they they probably yeah they're not as entrenched in jazz as the sax players of the time. So if you just listen to sax yeah. players, then you'll be and you and you yeah you'll you'll that's be well killing it. but yeah you know i feel like honestly when i when i take the time which doesn't happen that often usually one of my students turns me on to somebody that they're listening to they think great when i take the time and and listen to jazz violin right now i'm i'm there are a lot of great players all over the place doing a yeah. lot of different things yeah and and people that are inspired by all kinds of different world i mean it's really things have come together in a way but it almost feels like we all got there uh, as violinists. We all got there like 50 years after sa- the average sax player. Yeah. Somehow yeah, it's like yeah. the, just yeah. the community is like, we're like 50 years behind somehow. Yeah. Not, it, not in the, not in the specifics of what we're playing, but in the, 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 it's actually just coalesced in the, like the last 15 years or so. I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. It does seem that, and it, what's funny is like, I think in well maybe it happens in all of all of jazz, but people are like yeah, they're more of like a modern player, and you're like, well, they're right. not, are they? They're playing basically like '60s jazz language, which is there's nothing modern about '60s. Like, <laughs> well, there, there is no modern jazz language because yeah. it's it's gotten so it's gotten so diffuse. I mean, you can yeah. point to a particular person who's modern and talk about their language, but I would it would be really hard for me to identify actually modern jazz. Like, I feel like it is like the most modern cohesive jazz language is kind of like the sixties. Yes. Yeah. I guess, I guess that's so, I mean, it works, it goes across across the board, but it's just like, I think the word modern is, is just weird now, but I think like jazz violinists have like, maybe sax players have come to terms with that strange you know it's like postmodernism or whatever but we're just getting we're just suddenly like oh yeah look at me i'm playing my i'm playing my bebop lines sax players are like (laughs) all right man you know 
okay well we've been yeah, doing it's that like we for... all just graduated from swing school and now yeah. we're playing bebop for the first time yeah i know i know the feeling <laughs> well yeah, that's that... the thing about having you know grappelli as your sort of like ultimate godfather you know you you sort of or or, or venuti like there's like you said there were so few people that there's just not I mean, it, it's it's very cone shaped, right? From the beginning to where we are now, it's it's spread very, very, very slowly hmm. from one kind of particular thread. And even like the guys playing bop, sort of like Stuff Smith, were really kind of just swing players, really yeah. good ones, but like you know, not not didn't have the same harmonic sophistication. Um, I mean, all the people, if anyone who listens to this podcast is uh has heard me say this a lot and i've heard it said a lot or uh people talk about this guy a lot but i'm just i'm asking you on a personal level of you and i'm imagining you will harry lukowski do you know harry no, lukowski i've not heard this name no oh my god right you're gonna love this you're gonna love okay. it i'm so glad that i've been able to put you onto this harry lukowski was a classical violinist and played okay. on loads of the sessions back I'm in the really writing this now. back like i think he was on like the parker with strings he was just like the head the the lead violinist in all of the la sessions okay. um, he's la session musician but he basically in the 40s was like i want to i want to be a jazz i want to put a make a jazz violin record like a real modern jazz violin record but he doesn't improvise he cannot improvise, okay. but he just got all these like amazing jazz musicians of the time to write his solos for him. Wow. And so he, there's this album called Stringsville, which okay. is basically an like an absolutely killer classical violinist playing jazz solos by 40s bop legends. And it's like, oh man, okay, I'm definitely going to enjoy this. So, right, you, I want you, you've got to check it out after this because oh, you're just going to be like, you're gonna, you're gonna love it because the guy, it's like he can really play the violin like better than, and you know better than any jazz violinist I've heard. Right, he just plays uh -huh. violin, and he, you know, and he swings. He, he sounds hip. He doesn't sound like he's cool. Got because friend. he was probably playing this stuff. I mean, he certainly had in his ear, right? He just wasn't an improviser, it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, cool. So, okay, great. You got to check it out. Well, thanks um, for that. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm going to literally end this call and then listen to this record that you just uh, put me on to. Yeah. Every time I talk about it, it makes me go and listen to the record because it's just so, like, it's so. I don't know. There's something about this record. And it's also some of the first instances of overdubbing. So he overdubs himself. It's all, I checked the timing, but it's somewhere in the early 40s, I think it was recorded. Am I talking? I think I'm talking rubbish. No, it's not recorded in the early 40s. I, I don't think I'm sorry I don't think they were to whoever who, who, to ever heard this. It's in the 50s, Google. yeah, late 50s. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, late 50s, pretty cool. much 60. I was talking rubbish. I'm sorry, but. It, it's some of the first instances of, of uh, like, I think of, of of that, basically overdubbing. I, th he, I think he had to do it in the most crazy way. Maybe maybe I'm talking rubbish, but again, this is just people telling me on, on here about this. Um, oh, wow. Check it out. I think you're going to love it. Um, nice to chat to you. 
Nice to meet you, man. Nice yeah, to chat you with you. It was very, really a pleasure. Yeah, and um, hope we get to meet you in per- person. Yeah, some point one day. If you're ever in London, hit me up because I will yeah. absolutely do that. Yeah. I'm All right. Be in London this year, so if I oh really it actually comes to, it comes together, yeah. It's what are just, you gonna it do? Was just in fact, uh, this uh, a record I produced actually with the tango band of pre-war Yiddish theater tangos. All right. Um, uh, might be um, uh, might be might be getting some opportunities to play in the UK. So if That's if cool. that happens, I'll I'll call you for sure. I'd be, do I'd it. Love I'd to love to see you come. play. Yeah, and I'd love to come check that out. Excellent. Totally do it. Cool, man. All right. Awesome. Nice to meet you. Was, Likewise. Uh, yeah. Have a good one. Hey, thanks so much for checking us out today, guys. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Thanks for listening to me talking to Drew about jazz violin. I hope you enjoyed it. Um, anything to say? Do I have anything to say? If you want to support the podcast, blah, 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 Patreon. You already heard that earlier, um, so you understand. And you've probably heard it before, but you know what Patreon is. You know how it works. If you want to support us, you can do it on Patreon. um, And you can find me at www.patreon.com forward slash Matt Holborn. So yeah, um, I'm very busy at the moment playing, a lot of playing, a lot of recording, a lot of writing music, a little bit of... Yeah, touring. I was in the Edinburgh Fringe just recently. Um, I have a couple of gigs coming up in London town. What am I doing? I am doing... Wait there, i got to find it. Oh yeah, got it. So, uh, my next gig that you guys can come to if you're UK-based is Peggy Skylight in Nottingham on the 2nd of September. Playing with London Django Collective. We'll be playing some original music plus music by Django or played by Django or in the style of Django. Um, well, actually, also, if you're in Shambhala Festival this weekend, which is the 26th to the 28th of August, I'll be playing at the Pink Flamingo Jazz Tent all weekend, uh, every night, uh, till about 5 o'clock in the morning, just playing old jazz and swing. Uh, it's, I'm really excited. It's going to be great. Oh, yeah. So I've gone backwards there a little bit. Um, and then I guess... Uh, I'm trying. Last thing I guess would be in November. I mean, there's there'll be there'll be countless other things before that, but a nice big gig we're doing is at the Actors Church in Soho on November the 27th. So you put that in your diary. That's in London, Soho. Oh yeah, and one regular gig that if you are in town, you should come down to. Send me a little email, and I can try and get you some cheap tickets to it. We play every. Wednesday at the um, at the piano bar in Soho. So that's every Wednesday from six till about ten thirty at the piano bar in Soho. Um, we're playing. It's just uh, an, a different array of uh, gypsy jazz slash Django Reinhardt style musicians. Who uh, yeah, we play every week. So come and do it. It's a different band every every time. Uh, it's always an excellent band though. So please come down and check it out. Okay, um, other than that, I think that's everything. Um, still, there's still some uh, stuff coming out soon, some of my original music. It's uh, yet to be announced, but that's uh, still on in the pipeline. There's loads of stuff ready to go, so I'm excited for you guys to hear it. Um, yeah, hope you have a great month, and I'll speak to you next time. See you later.